This podcast is an invitation to feel and experience the souls of famous old Hollywood homes and to have an in-depth journey to the areas where they're located through interviews with longtime residents. Either you're a fan of old Hollywood in Los Angeles, planning to have a vacation, or an even bigger step, considering a certain area for your future home. This is your opportunity to receive valuable information and insightful advice you won't find anywhere else. Hello, hello, and welcome to my podcast. Are you in the mood for California? Today, we'll feel and experience the life of Sergei Rachmaninoff in Los Angeles through an interview with incredible Dr. Keenan Reeser. It was precisely that community that drew him mostly to Los Angeles. I mean, part of it was that he just wanted to get out of the the colder, denser eastern cities where he concertized. So yeah, the weather was a part of it. But what really made it stand apart was the artistic community that he found himself in. And again, his sister-in-law, was, uh, who was such an important source of information about him, she says that, that that was really the main thing that made this summer of 1942 different from the others. So for example... You know, at uh, in Switzerland, you know, he did have the ability to get away from the city and to garden. But, you know, he might have an occasional visitor, but he wasn't he wasn't surrounded by artists. You know, he wasn't surrounded by his people, his kind of people. And it was the same uh, in all the places where he before that, where he had summered in France. You know, he would find a place to summer where he could have solitude or, you know, solace. But it, it was in California that he found a very vibrant community. Masha Korpacheva is a California-based realtor and a member of the National Association of Realtors in Los Angeles. She's an advocate for selling and buying homes with soul and practicing mindfulness in real estate. With master's degrees in spiritual psychology and linguistics, Masha brings all of her skills to work with her clients. An intuit and empath, she has touched many lives with her outstanding ability to see beyond the visible and helping to come to better understanding of issues and their resolutions. An adventurous world traveler, from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania to exploring the Galapagos Islands, Masha has a particular passion for the City of Angels. Having landed in this paradise and adopted it as her home, she's been sharing old Hollywood stories since 2007. In the mood for California, feel the soul of old Hollywood. And now, are you ready to get a glimpse into Rachmaninoff's life in Los Angeles? The music composed by Rachmaninoff has always been my favorite. It has the ability to strike the deepest notes in my soul its powerful energy resembles the ocean, with waves coming at you and receding, and then repeating it over and over again with new tenacity. There is a certain perseverance in the spiral nature of Rachmaninoff's compositions. 
after fleeing the turmoil of the Russian Revolution, in 1918, Sergei Rachmaninoff and his family found refuge in New York City and later in Switzerland, until 1942, when already in declining health, he moved permanently to Los Angeles to escape World War II in Europe. Initially, Rachmaninoff made his debut with the Los Angeles Philharmonic in 1919, resulting in the following review by the critic Edwin Schellert. Art and personality in art assumed a new significance with the first piano concert of Sergei Rachmaninoff in this city. He played last night at Trinity Auditorium and before a throng that had apparently long anticipated his appearance proved himself a giant of the keyboard. In return, Rachmaninoff was very impressed with the city's natural beauty and warm climate and returned many times over the years and ended up owning his final home in Beverly Hills on Elm Drive. In the fall of 1942, the composer wrote to a friend, reminiscing that he was forced to abandon five of the six homes he had owned throughout his life. In general, I'm not lucky with houses. It's true, I've bought a house. A small, neat house on a good residential street in Beverly Hills. It has a tiny garden with lots of flowers and several trees, an orange tree, a lemon, and a nectarine. While the Elm Drive house was being getting ready to move in, Rachmaninoff drove from Tower Road where he was temporarily staying with a shovel and a rake spending his time digging and planning for his garden and planting trees in the front yard for privacy. While residing in Los Angeles, Rachmaninoff's home parish was Holy Virgin Mary Russian Orthodox Cathedral in Silver Lake. He was content to live a quiet life surrounded by his family and close friends. His days were spent writing music, practicing piano, and exploring the city he now called home. Even as his health began to decline, Rachmaninoff never lost his passion for music or his love for the city that had welcomed him with open arms. In the end, it was here that Rachmaninoff would spend his final days. He passed away from advanced melanoma at his home on Elm Drive on March 28, 1943 leaving behind a legacy that would inspire generations of musicians to come. To this day, his music remains a beloved part of the cultural fabric of Los Angeles, a testament to the enduring power of art to bring people together, even in the most challenging of times. Music is enough for a whole lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music. Sergei Rachmaninoff
And here we are. Welcome to Los Angeles, where Sergei Rachmaninoff left his everlasting legacy. I'm beyond delighted to have incredible Dr. Rieser here with me. Dr. Keenan Rieser is a musicologist and pianist, equally at home, in the archive, concert hall, and classroom. As a scholar, he specializes in the music and reception of Sergei Rachmaninoff, and his research has taken him to the British Library, the Library of Congress, and the Glinka Russian Museum of Musical Culture. As a pianist, Dr. Rieser has performed across the United States and Europe and is a double laureate of the Palm Springs International Piano Competition. He currently serves as Associate Professor of Music and Director of Keyboard Studies at Southern Virginia University. He and his wife, Nani, are the proud parents of five boys, ages 2 to 14. Dr. Rieser will share with us what Rachmaninoff's life was like when he lived in Los Angeles. Hello, Keenan. Hi. Great to be here. Well, I'm, as I told you, I'm so thrilled to be speaking to you. And I'm so grateful that you found the time um, today to talk about Sergei Rachmaninoff. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. And it was such a pleasure to meet you. The Rachmaninoff Festival just last week, a real pleasure. So you obviously played Rachmaninoff's compositions. You studied a lot about uh, what kind of person he was and what inspired him artistically. And the last part of Rachmaninoff's tumultuous life took place in Los Angeles. Could you please share with us some details about it? Um, do you think that he might have found some solace here? Did he even like the City of Angels? Great question. And I think it's worth giving some time to this word you chose, tumultuous, because as you know, there was plenty of tumult happening in the early 1940s when he moved here with World War II raging in Europe. And that actually had a direct impact on his decision to come here. You know, like a lot of Russians of his generation and social status, he was accustomed his whole life to living in the city during the fall and the winter, and then going to the country in the spring and the summer. And he really came to depend on getting out of the city and getting to some place where he could be in nature. He loved to garden and he loved this tradition so much that he continued it even after he left Russia. Mm -hmm. But he had built a home in Switzerland, but then he had to abandon that because of the outbreak of World War II. So when he moved in uh, to LA in 1942, he was, he was just looking for a new place he could really call home in the off season. And that's, uh, that's what he found here. So, uh, he, you know, he felt like it was a place he quickly decided it was a place he could put down some roots and, you know, maybe look ahead to a, a sunny retirement. Right, right. So he found some sort of a dacha for himself. That's what we call like somewhere um, homes. <laughs> exactly. In fact, his uh, sister-in-law, Sophie Satin, who was very close to him, used the term dacha to describe the home that he actually bought in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills. 
you know, it's a, we don't really, we're not in the custom of using the word dacha or even cottage in American suburban mm-hmm. life, you know, so to us, it would just be a house, you know, uh, there where someone would live full time, but it was definitely a dacha to him. <laughs> no question. Yes, yes. And I know that he was very fond of lilac. That was like his favorite flower. And uh, as far as I know, he was always trying to plant lilacs around his homes. Yes. You know, he he did like lilacs. And you must know that uh, he wrote an entire piece uh, called Lilacs, a mm-hmm. song. Yes. You know, and he, and there's in fact two, there are two songs that he named after flowers. The other one is Daisies. And he loved not only different species of flowers, but he he really loved also trees. You know, in his letters, there are references to, you know, I mean, it's funny. He'll go from talking about a symphony he's composing one moment, and then the next moment he's talking about how many trees he planted that day, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's he just talks about them with such affection. And, um, you know, it, it, every place he went, he was looking for a place to do this. So, you know, just to zoom out a little bit, when he was in Russia, his own parents actually, especially his father, squandered their estate. So he didn't, you know, although he was born in luxury or comfort, at least, by the time he was about 10, all the money was gone. But uh, he had relatives that maintained their their estates and their dachas. And so he was still able to get away. And um, did you know that when he married, he actually married his first cousin, just like Stravinsky? Yes, I did know that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So so the home that he had actually gone to to visit when he was a boy actually became his own home after he married and his wife inherited the estate. So he had all these years, all these years from the time he was a boy up until 1917, when things got dangerous in the countryside, he was in this habit of going out and planting you know, overseeing the planting, the harvesting, you know, directly. And then after he left, it took him a few years to get his bearings, you know, and he would, he spent a few of the summers in the 20s in the in America. Then he started going to Europe for the summers. Sometimes it was Dresden. Sometimes he was in Italy, but he liked to spend a lot of time in Paris where there was a very large Russian community. And that's where, like I say, in 1932, he finally decided to just build a home in Europe where, and, and as soon as he did that in Switzerland, he got busy gardening again when he had his own parcel of land. So it was no different when he moved to LA, he wanted a place to garden and, and his sister-in-law again said that some of the things he was most excited about were the trees. He wouldn't stop talking about these trees on his property. So yes. So that's what he was interested in doing. Hmm, Interesting. So, you know, there is this saying that, uh, you know, to live a good life, you need to plant a tree, to build a house and um, to have a son. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't have sons, you know, and whatever houses that he built, you know, uh, especially, you know, in Russia, yes, he had to flee. And I think it was a drama in his heart, you know, for the rest of his life. And oh, then yeah. tried to recreate it. And then when he did recreate it um, on Lake Lucerne uh, in Switzerland, then he still had um, to leave it behind. And, you know, coming up to this last portion of his life in Los Angeles, you know, maybe planting trees was 
you know, the last thing that he thought that was permanent because trees cannot be taken out of the ground, you know. I like that. Yes, I, I think so. You know, he just, he just, like I say, he spoke about nature with so much affection. I think that really his love of nature, his love of gardening, it comes from the same creativity that drove his musical activities. I really mean that. Mm-hmm. If you look at the number of his compositions that deal with uh, nature topics, uh, I think you can see that too. You know, we mentioned the uh, the flowers, that's two songs, but there are many, many situations that in his compositions that involve nature. And there's, there's a cantata spring, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, there's a song, this, the waters of spring. So there's a lot. He just, he loved it. Yes, yes. So probably nature was the main source where he drew inspiration. Wouldn't you say so? I think so. You know, he was also in his compositions deeply influenced by, uh, at different times, by painting and by literature. Uh, for example, the Isle of the Dead was based on painting of the same name by Arnold Berklin. Mm-hmm. And he also was a devoted fan of Tolstoy and especially Chekhov. But nature was important, not only because it was a source of inspira- direct inspiration, but, and he made this very clear, because he found he found a peace in natural surroundings that he felt that he needed to compose. In the 1920s, especially when he was concertizing all the time and he didn't have a home of his own to escape to in the summers, he told people, I just don't, the conditions aren't right. He needed to be healthy, needed to feel well, he needed to have a place to get away from the city. He needed contact with nature. And whenever he managed to get those conditions in place, his composing thrived. So, you know, if you look at just the, the number of compositions he produced between 1917 and the next ones that came out in 1926, that's nine years. Mm-hmm. And the ones that he, uh, one of the works that he composed in 1926, the fourth piano concerto, he had in fact drafted at least the first movement before leaving Russia. So what he was doing there was actually completing work uh, begun earlier. And then the other opus that came out that year, 1926, was a set of three Russian folk songs for chorus and orchestra. But, you know, that summer was hard for him, that spring and summer when he was working on those compositions, it was hard for him to, to get, to push the concerts away, to get space to work on his music. And then he didn't produce another composition again until 1931 when he did the Corelli variations. But when he got to Switzerland, then he composed some works in earnest. He quickly produced the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. He quickly followed that up within just two years with the third symphony. So the juices were flowing again, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and as you probably know, when he moved to California and bought the home in Beverly Hills, he immediately planned to build a studio on the property where he could compose. He was wanting to get back to that. Mm. So probably the environment in which he lived really affected his well-being so much that, like as far as I know, when uh, he just came to the East Coast, 
he started working as a pianist and he couldn't compose at all. And then in Lucerne, he regained this inspiration and he started writing music. And then, as you're saying, coming to Los Angeles, you know, almost like as a retirement, right? He started yes. having this flow of inspiration again. So he was at least thinking about it. Had he had enough time to do, to do that, he would probably compose some other works here in Los Angeles. Yes, I agree with that because, you know, studying his output as a composer after he left Russia is kind of a challenge because like most composers uh, and in his generation for sure, when he published a, a major work anytime during his career between 1893 and 1917, he'd give it an opus number. You know, we're dealing with an, a mm -hmm. kind of original composition. He was actually active as a composer after emigration. Every year he was doing something, but very often the works that he was producing were transcriptions, you know, and he wrote some of the most effective piano transcriptions that anyone, list included, has ever written. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was always active, but it's not always obvious when you look at the list of opus numbers. So, for example, in 1940, he dedicated himself to composing his symphonic dances. And then what he would do is he'd start on his concert tour, but he would be doing the proofs for the publisher while he's on the train, you know, sending them back, doing corrections, meeting with conductors that are going to give the premieres. Uh, when 1941 rolled around, he undertook a major revision of his fourth concerto and also turned out that beautiful little transcription of Tchaikovsky's Lullaby. Mm -hmm. And that's the last, that's the last um, original piece that he produced. But even Prior to coming to L.A., right before he moved to L.A. in early 1942, he was still at work as a composer making the two piano version of the symphonic dances. So you're absolutely right, Masha. There's no question that if he had simply had more time, that he would have done something. He couldn't really keep himself from it. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I think Los Angeles is very creative in so many ways. And the city can be an inspiration in um, in ways of even the way the air smells, you know. And if you sure. are a visual person, you go, you know, to the mountains, you go to the ocean. And there is always something special in the energy of Los Angeles that I feel here constantly and where I drew my inspiration as well, like for my writings and for meeting people and yeah. Yes. Oh, I agree. You know, I, um, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you when we met, but I lived for eight years in L.A. And it, it definitely has its own feeling, its own uh, fragrances, you know, the, anything from the smell of the sea to, well, it's almost a cliche to say it, but the smell of the orange blossoms, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the lemons and, and so forth. And he had an orange and a lemon tree on his house on his property that he bought on Elm Drive, you know? So I would agree. I think it's it's just such a unique place in our country, for sure. Yes, yes. But also, and uh, we did discuss this a little bit with you, that Rachmaninoff was uh, truly enjoying being part of an artistic community here in Los Angeles, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Could you please tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. It was precisely that community that drew him mostly to Los Angeles. I mean, 
part of it was that he just wanted to get out of the, the colder, denser eastern cities where he concertized. So yeah, the weather was a part of it. But what really made it stand apart was the artistic community that he found himself in. And again, his sister-in-law was, uh, who was such an important source of information about him. She says that 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 was really the main thing that made this summer of 1942 different from the others. So for example, you know, at, uh, in Switzerland, you know, he did have the ability to get away from the city and to garden, but, you know, he might have an occasional visitor, but he wasn't, he wasn't surrounded by artists, you know, he wasn't surrounded by his people, his kind of people. And it was the same uh, in all the places where he, he, before that, where he had summered in France, you know, he would find a place to summer where he could have solitude or, you know, solace. But it, it was in California that he found a very vibrant community of other musicians, artists, actors, dancers, um, many of whom were, of course, Russian. So already from 1940, Stravinsky was a resident of Southern California. He was just a couple miles away. And, you know, if you wanted any proof that Southern California put Rachmaninoff in an unusual mood, it would be the fact that he and Stravinsky finally sat down with each other, <laughs> you know, because... They're obviously so different and both equally outspoken about their opinions about music. Yes. Yeah. He had also Arthur Rubinstein and his wife were in Los Angeles that summer. Vladimir Horowitz and his wife were in Los Angeles that summer. Um, one of the men that wrote his most important biography, Sergei Bertensen, also, he, he was more of a theater guy. He was also in L.A. And so he was, he simply uh, basked in all of this wonderful artistic community. And that really supplied the greatest joys in Los Angeles for him. You know, he gave his performances, including at the Hollywood Bowl in July, 1942, but it was these evening gatherings, you know, playing duets with Horowitz, having dinner with friends. He just really cherished about his time. Mm. Beautiful. You know, the way you were just talking about it, I felt as, as if I was almost present, you know, silently observing, you know, Rachmaninoff sure. meeting with, with Stravinsky and exchanging ideas. And I know Horowitz yes. also played his pieces at Hollywood Bowl. And I read somewhere that Rachmaninoff told Horowitz that he always wanted this piece to be played that way and he thought that it would just never happen on earth and Horowitz you know did this for Rachmaninoff right yeah that that's right that's a reference to the third concerto mm -hmm. and that anecdote was I've looked into that the the only place I could find it was in Horowitz's own telling Horowitz definitely uh recorded that interaction I would be so fascinated if I could find more information about that in uh, a newspaper or something, because it's such a wonderful interaction and truly so rare. You know, Rachmaninoff was so modest. Yes. Even on stage, he was modest. So the thought of him leaving his comfort zone to tell that to Horowitz in public, I mean, that would be truly monumental for him to do. Yes, I agree. I agree. Wow. 
I have an anecdote I could share. Um, you might be familiar with this because it's also in his biography. But remember, things were the war was also brewing in the West mm-hmm. in 1942. Pearl Harbor had happened, and so one of the features of his time in Los Angeles was actually air raid sirens. You know, and they would have these drills where the public sirens would go off. And sometimes they'd have to turn out the lights, you know, to they were just doing these drills to in case the Japanese bombers made it to the coast. Mm-hmm. So on one of these occasions, he was at an evening with exactly one of these groups of and it wasn't just musicians. It was musicians. It was artists. It was authors. And all of a sudden the lights go out. You know, the city cuts the power. The sirens go on. And this one woman in the audience, she said, without even thinking about it, she's just, she says, I just felt like singing and I sing. And this is all in the dark. It's all in the dark. And she says, if I had remembered Rachmaninoff was there, I would never have done it. But when the song ended, I was surprised to hear Sergei Vasilievich's voice. He had moved to the piano where I was standing and almost in a whisper said, please go on singing. Don't break this lovely mood. Nowadays, one seldom hears a sincere voice. Your song is truly the Russia that we all love and miss so much. Sing, I beg you, sing much, sing long. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yes, that's absolutely wonderful. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was happy. That part of it was happy, at least. Yes, yes, true. So we did talk a little bit about his home on Elm Drive in Beverly Hills. Do you um, know if there is any account of what he felt while he was living there? Yes, we have. uh, The most detailed account is coming from his Mm sister-in-law. This uh, biography that Bertenson wrote, which I, I referred to, I'm going to go ahead and say the title. It's Sergei Rachmaninoff, A Lifetime in Music. This is a very authoritative biography because it was written in consultation with Sophie Satin, and they had full access to all the primary sources while many of Rachmaninoff's uh, family were still living. So it'll never be obsolete. And the last chapter of this biography, if you ever want a very good account, read it. It's excellent. Mm -hmm. So we do know some things about his time. First of all, they bought the house on Elm Drive while they were still renting a different house in uh, Beverly Hills on Tower Road. But uh, Rachmaninoff was so eager to get the house on Elm Drive, you know, his own house ready that he would, you know, they'd be eating their meals on Tower Road and having their social gatherings there. But then he'd go over to the house on Elm Drive when it was still empty, just so he could garden. Mm. He went over there to work in the, the yard to, you know, tend the trees and so forth. So we know that he was deeply attached to that garden. And what they did was, you know, as soon as they bought it, which was at the very end of June, they immediately made preparations to have their belongings brought from New York. They ordered new furniture for the home. And what they were doing was they wanted to get it all ready before he had to go on his tour that year. So they got as much of their stuff there and moved in in the fall. And then when he left on his tour in late October, they had just moved in. So he he hadn't actually lived there that long. But it was a good thing 
tragically that he had it in order because he had to cut that tour short because he fell ill. And as we know now, it was a very aggressive form of cancer. Mm -hmm. So when he came back in February, late February to that home, you know, he thought he was going to convalesce, but it ended up being the place where he died. But even during that time, Masha, even during that time, he constantly asked people for news about the garden, which flowers were in bloom, how the trees were doing. And they get this. They even brought him seed catalogs to read. So, you know, he I mean, this is someone who knew Chekhov back and back and forward, and he wanted to read seed catalogs <laughs> while he's on his deathbed. Yes. So he he really, as you were saying earlier, he really found in this home the respite that he so craved. It's just that it was for a tragically short period of time. Yes, yes. Oh my god. Like don't we all become seeds at some point, you know? Wow, <laughs> how profound. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes. And so. uh, yes, coming, you know, to the end of our conversation, um, I have uh, a couple of more questions. So how would you say that Rachmaninoff affected your life, your personal life? And one more question would be, what do you think he would have to say to us now? Oh, thank you for those questions. Um, the first one, as I was mentioning uh, earlier, Rachmaninoff really, I mean, kind of amazingly, has reached from beyond the grave and has had a profound influence on my life. I remember uh, growing up, you know, and when I grew up, the culture of musical amateurism you know, in, in America, the whole movement of music appreciation, of having a piano in the home, having music to read at the piano, that was still around. It was just, it was just waning then, you know. And so I would dig through my grandma's collection of sheet music and see these old yellowed pages of these old publications. Well, that was the kind of score that I learned his Prelude in C sharp minor from. Mm. I remember seeing a copy of the score that had a photograph of him on the front, and I was captivated from his appearance from the very beginning. You know, this is something that reviewers comment on a lot. You know, when he came to the United States for the first time in 1909, people just felt he had a magnetic personality. He had a commanding kind of presence, and I felt that in that picture. And from that point on, when I was 10, I was, Rachmaninoff has been a constant thread in my entire life. I learned that piece. I then a few years later with a little bit more experience began to learn the third concerto and um, have, have devoted years of my life to uh, learning and performing that piece. Uh, and I've, I've also learned his first and second concertos and the Rhapsody on the theme of Paganini, the second sonata, all of the etude tableau. You know, I've learned, I've dedicated years and years and years of my life to learning his music. And also, uh, since going into musicology, to studying his music and his reception. So our lives are pretty well intertwined, I'd have to say. Yes. But it's been a constant source of inspiration and a source of beauty in my life. Now, as to the question of what would he say, this is an interesting question because among reporters, he was notoriously tight-lipped. 
He didn't like attention. He was hard to, to capture and get an interview with. He, um, and he stayed out of politics and anything else that might be deemed controversial. In fact, he even said he was asked by a journalist, a music journalist, about modern music. And he, he opened up to him, but he said, I have to ask you not to share this letter until after I've died. He says, uh, he ended that letter, in silence lies safety. You know, he just mm. didn't want to stir up the pot. So what would he say to us? Masha, I'm quite sure that Rachmaninoff would be speaking to us, but I'm equally sure he would be speaking to us in his music and his interpretations. And he would wish for those to present his thoughts to the world rather than his own words. He would, com he would be communicating to us through music. Yes, and he will continue to communicate to us through his music for years and years to come. And his music is most touching and most beautiful. And um, it affects my life in such a great way. And I'm sure lives of many, many other people who admire him as a composer. Beautiful. Thank you. What a pleasure, what a pleasure to and an honor to speak with you today, Masha. Thank you, Kenan. Thank you for everything you have shared. And uh, I really, really appreciate our conversation. And long live Rachmaninoff. <laughs> long live Rachmaninoff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kenan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, what a treat. I hope you enjoyed experiencing the life of Sergei Rachmaninoff in Los Angeles as much as I did with my special guest, Dr. Keenan Rieser. Please press the like button, follow and share your feedback for the podcast. Your time and support are appreciated more than you know. Next time, we'll be experiencing Los Angeles in a conversation with a third-generation Californian. Imagine that. Looking forward to seeing you. In the mood for California, feel the soul of old Hollywood.